glasses more consistently in college. And then after college, I was like, I think I'm going to get some of those thick frames that I keep seeing around. Oh yeah. Those would be pretty tight. And then I bought these and I, they very much uh, become part of my face. People act very surprised when they see me without glasses. This this is an exciting, I finding yourself in college. is really fun. Yeah. (laughs) It's the least, uh, least exciting finding myself in college. It's the small things that make a big difference. Yeah. I don't, I don't trust those like big, crazy, dramatic gestures that people make with their lives as little things. Like I'll try glasses. Mm-hmm. I yeah. I stole my beard from from this dude who used to like lurk around my college who looked like a Russian poet. Oh, really? Yeah, he just had like a lengthy. He had a beard, but then like the chin part was just like really overgrown, and I was like, something about that guy. I like it. I'm going for it. Uh huh. That reminded me. I stole my hairstyle. I've just been pushing my hair to the side like this since freshman year of college. Yeah. Oh, uh, freshman year of high school when a kid named Neil McMillan came in and we were essentially like the same type. We were like both like relatively like chubby blonde kids. And uh, he came back one after one summer and his hair was pushed to the side. And I was like, that looks so good. And I, I took the risk and I did it and everyone knew I was copying him, but I stuck with it. Uh, and I made it my own. That's the whole trick. Like style trick is stick with it long enough mm-hmm. and it, you grow into it. Yeah. My friends have finally stopped giving me shit over it. I, I've been uh, like rereading some old books recently oh, yeah? and have been shocked to find like, Oh, I stole bits and pieces of this book and it just kind of became my personality. <laughs> and then like, I forgot, I forgot that at one point I made the choice to start like using this phrase uh-huh. or, or, or like <laughs> yeah. doing the thing. And it's a strange feeling to to realize like, oh, it's, it's all, all this stuff about me is like borrowed material from elsewhere that like yeah. I developed amnesia about and just assumed this is my look, this is my personality. Yeah. That's why you call everyone old chap. That's such. why I say <laughs> old chap. So I was reading, uh, um, I was watching a lot of 1930s British films at the time, assuming they were going to make a big comeback and they didn't. Yeah. Are we recording? I knew it. Listening to the Magnet Podcast. All right, so you were you were you were a chubby blonde kid without glasses. Yeah, huh. big I time. Have, I wouldn't have figured. I know. I've done the best I can to. No, 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 no. There's nothing wrong with being a chubby blonde kid. I just wouldn't no, have figured. There isn't. No. Yeah. No. When did the change happen for you? Uh, mostly like freshman year of college and the, uh, the summer after that, I yeah. lost like 30 pounds, which is startling, but, uh, a welcome change. I'd was say. it like an exercise thing or a or diet thing or just like one of those natural body change, body I morphs? I think it's a natural body morph in conjunction with being like a lot more motivated, a lot more busy yeah. and just like a lot more active in college. Yeah. Just like just more stuff going on. Yeah. Like I hit college and I just like had so much stuff to do and I loved it. College is great, isn't it? It's so good. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's an exciting time. Everything changes for you. You're free to choose bits and pieces of things that you like and try new hairstyles. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm talking, of course, to the great Will Jacobs. Oh. Triple threat, Will quadruple threat, <laughs> Will Jacobs. Will represents the world of improvisation on Wednesdays with Sexy Baby. Represents the world of musical improvisation on Tuesdays with Warm-Blooded. 
represents the world of, of, of childhood wonder and entertainment all over the damn place, all over the calendar with the story pirates and is an award-winning playwright, a written author. <laughs> That's cool, man. Oh, thanks. Tell me about your award-winning play. It is called Telegraph. That's as much as I gathered yeah. from the internet. Yeah. Oh, good. Um, Telegraph was uh, part of my school. Uh, I went to Washington University in St. Louis and they had a playwriting festival that you could submit to every year. And that consisted basically of like, if you it got in, it would essentially be workshopped over a month, uh, over the month of September and then get a staged reading. And if it got uh, selected beyond that, it would be produced by the performing arts department. And Telegraph was my submission to that my senior year of college. Um, and it's a play about a telegraph operator who's convinced that his uh, deceased wife is uh, in the telegraph hmm. and is communicating with him. And it is, it's bonkers. And I, it makes a really good credit and I liked the process and I learned so much from the process, but it's probably not something that I'm going to show again. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It like, it, it's not representative of you anymore. I don't think so. Yeah. I think, I think even like the years when I was writing it, I started writing it when I was 21. It got selected when I was 22. And by the time I was 23 was when it was being put up and it was like such a, a, those three years were like of such enormous change for me. Mm -hmm. I kept rewriting it and rewriting it. And it's like, none of it was working, but it was also because I was changing as quickly as the play was, I mm -hmm. almost feel like. And that's, they brought in a dramaturg. It's a really good festival. They like, they brought in this guy named Ed Sobel who has worked with like Steppenwolf and teaches at Temple University now. And he, he basically like, I was like going on to him about all these rewrites and changes that I wanted to make. And he was like asking me about like the play in its original form. And I was like, why is this dude asking me about all this like shit that I've forgotten about already? And he's like, well, I just can't fathom writing something when I was 22. And then like, just like making minor changes when I'm 23 and, and just being okay with it. Like you're such different, you're going through like kind of enormous changes sure. mentally. And I, it kind of like, it's, it, it sticks with me now as the defining element of that process was like trying to catch up with the kind of, with my own mental processes. Um, and what I ended up with, I was like, I was really proud of a lot of the writing I did in it. And I generally found that I liked the later writing more than the early writing that was in the final product. And the play had like such a, a really dedicated, great cast. And the working with the director, who's one of my professors in college was like, amazing and like very worthwhile but it was also like a very big project for i had not done much playwriting in school mm -hmm. and i had not seen a lot of my work on stage and just there's so many elements to it that you don't that are not it's like it, it can be so perfect in your head but like putting it on actors is one step removed yeah get putting it in front of directors another step removed seeing it on stage is a third step removed putting it in front of an audience that reacts is a fourth step removed so it's kind of like it could be as good as it was in my head, but it, it's, it's never going to be exactly what it is. You know? Yeah. There's that element of you, you got to like cope with that disappointment of knowing that it's never going to be what you see. Yeah. And I could not cope with that throughout that process. Really? Yeah. I think, I think I just was like, no, 
pretty soon it will be perfect. Yeah. And I just, I held out and then it, uh, of course it, it wasn't because that's not how those things are. Did you ever come to terms with that or is it kind of like the, the embarrassing, uh, um, like, you know, it's not in your closet, but is it like the embarrassing photo in the yearbook for you? I think it's not, I'm not embarrassed by it, but I think it's taken, it's certainly taken a lot to come to where I am now in terms of thinking about it. Well, are you ever happy with the, the stuff that you do? Or, like, do you ever look back at, at stuff that you've written and are delightfully surprised that it's much better than you thought it would be? Yeah. I think, I think in some sense I look back at the, the Telegraph script and it is better than I have it in my head. Well, that's good. Yeah. And I think I've done like some web stuff, like written this thing called Time Phone. I don't, that's like this, these five minute long sketches of just me talking to like a quote unquote ancestor of mine in the past. So like one of them is me talking to a peasant mm. and one is me talking to a guy in ancient Greece. And I, I look back at that and I'm like, oh, that, those were fun. That was good. And I'm really, I'm proud that I like followed through on filming those. Yeah. So it's not a total lost cause where I'm like, everything's, everything's trash. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I can understand like the compromise that you have to make for anything that you, that you're able to materialize between kind of staying true to your original reason for, for wanting to create it to begin with mm-hmm. versus being such a perfectionist that you're basically strangling it to death. Mm-hmm. F- finding that like wiggle room without coping with like waves and waves of, of uh, self What's the word for it? It's not exactly guilt or self-hatred, but it's somewhere in between those Definitely close. Yeah, Yeah, it's right in that neighborhood. Yeah, like... Shame, I guess? There's like a little bit of a weird sense of shame. Yeah, depending on who you are. Yeah. I definitely get that. Yeah. Um, Is it a weird thing to work with your professor as the director of the play that you wrote? I want to say no, but definitely yes. It's like, it was... It was this kind of... It was this person who like really revered and was a teacher of, she taught my first ever acting class and she taught the the final acting class that I taught, I took in college. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like throughout that process, it was in a certain sense, like she is the authority, like she is the correct one. When I think at times, like she didn't want to be that. She just wanted to be, she just wanted to know what was in my head. Mm. And I was trying to figure out what she wanted from mm-hmm. me. Whereas if, like, if I had just like taken a breath and just like being on, like, this isn't how I hear this scene. Um, you know, we, it could have been more of a collaboration than it, it was. And I think at the, at the end I felt really good about it. And I felt like I grow, I grew from it, but there was a limitation in terms of like seeing her as the authority. Yeah. Cause I didn't, I didn't really trust myself as a writer cause it was a big project to undertake without ever, ever having written like a, a short play and it was, you know, it was an hour over an hour long. What, like what, what prompted you to want to do it? Was it just that the, that the opportunity was there? Was it, was it to challenge yourself or did you kind of have it in the back of your mind that this was something that you wanted to, to try? I had it in the back of my mind for a while that I wanted to be writing yeah. stuff. And I, I have notes from like when I was 
even probably like late in high school and very early in college of like play ideas and stuff like that. And I think I revered the whole idea of playwriting as like so hard that mm. I, I wasn't really like willing to put myself out there in that respect until mm. I was like, you know, an upperclassman and like big in the department and like was willing to like actually take the playwriting class that they offered. And, you know, as soon as I did, I was like, oh, I should have like, <laughs> I should have done this years ago. Done this years ago. Yeah. And the, I mean, luckily the playwriting teacher felt the same. He was like, oh, this is great. Like, but <laughs> you're a senior, like we wish, like it could have, you could have grown a lot more if we had yeah. you as another classman. You ever see Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Yes. You, you know, towards the end, there's that like gigantic chasm with no bridge. And he's got to cross to the other side. Yeah. You just got to take that step of faith. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the start of any kind of endeavor, and when you're doing something you've never done before, doing something that seems bigger than you're equipped to handle or, or, yeah. or, or exploring like a new avenue of self-expression that you don't really feel qualified for yet. There is just that, that step seems to be it. That like once you step forward into it, you realize, oh, you figure it out as you go about doing it. Yeah. And the problems that seem so monumental or such like gigantic chasms really are you manage them as they kind of come up and you fuck them up or you don't fuck them up. But, mm. but there's always that thing, like once you're in the water, it's like, Oh, I'm, I was such a coward for not getting in the water before, Yeah, but putting your first toe in there, you know what I mean? Like, it's like absolutely, you feel so ill prepared, mm -hmm. uh, uh, so un, I don't know. I, I, I'm like accepting the fact that I'm going to spend the rest of my life feeling unqualified for everything <laughs> and unprepared for everything. Yeah. It's just, it's not going away. It's getting worse with time. Mm -hmm. And I guess like that's just sort of how you feel. Mm -hmm. And the difference between creating and not creating is just the people who feel that way and just get on with it mm -hmm. versus the ones who like are waiting for the epiphany or waiting for permission or whatever. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, so I take it that you're not the kind of person who waits for it to happen. You're the kind of person who, who looks to set yourself up to create the opportunities that you want. I don't know where I'm getting that idea from, Will. Uh, I guess I don't. The distinction being like, I think I think I I am very timid, and that leap of faith is like a big or that step of faith. I think that's a great description. Seems very big for me. I guess I'll say like it, I would never have been in that process were it for not, not for being like, you know, I never would have like self-produced a play at college. Mm -hmm. Like I would have never written something and had the confidence to be like, Hey, come check this out. Like yeah. I needed the validation of a festival that I could submit to anonymously essentially yeah. without telling any of my friends. And I didn't, and I did not tell any friends. I did not send any of them the script um, to like, say like, Oh, this is good enough for us to work on. And then once I had that recognition, I was like, okay, that's more, I have permission now. And it's, so I don't, I'm not a huge like jumping in person. In fact, the first time I ever saw improv, I was like, wow, that's insane. I'm never going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm never going to do that in my life. <laughs> classic words, classic first words of an improviser. Oh yeah. The, if you, if you say to yourself, I could never do that you're definitely going to do it. Yeah. The people who are never going to do it never even get so far as to say, I could never do that. They just go like, that's weird. Yeah, exactly. Right. Or like, that's lame. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, um, I read a couple of years ago, this oral biography of Robert Altman. And, 
because uh, I'm a really big Robert Altman fan. Okay. Um, or I'm a really big fan of a small chunk of Robert Altman's career. Okay. And then the rest of it is kind of, okay. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with him or any of his movies. It's very little. He did MASH. He did um, okay. Nashville was kind of like the big one that kind of was like the apex of his career. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was like, like a, 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 a shuckster. I guess that's the word. Like he was like selling movies before he had movies to sell and just like putting together deals. And it was like part of this generation, this like real old school generation. And I feel like read about like early movies. It's like the same thing with a lot of these guys. They're, they're equal parts con artist and regular artists. Uh It it, like, they were people who were out there just insisting that people listen to what they have to say and looking to create opportunities for them to say it before they even knew what the hell they were saying. It was just like, I got to get these people to come see it. And as they're on their way to come, I'll I'll (laughs) kind of make it happen. Can't imagine. (laughs) I can't imagine either. It it, like, I'm just like not at all cut from that cloth. And I'm so incredibly fascinated by people who are, I mean, it seems part of it seems like a generational thing of like a few generations back. There was like more of that thing of you had to, you just couldn't wait for people to invite you to do anything. You had to just like do what you wanted to do. And you had to have a really strong ego to insist that like what I want to do is worth everybody else investing their time in me. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like what you're describing is similar to my take on the world, which is. I require lots of external validation before I'll even step my toe into the, into the water. Yeah. Which fucking sure. sucks. Yeah. It sucks. I, I don't know how you feel, but it, that drives me crazy. It's one of the things I, I like struggle with a lot. Mm-hmm. I'd say, yeah, I'd say I definitely struggle with that. More or less. It's hard to say absolutely. Cause like at the end of the day, I think I do you know, I'm in, I'm in this world. So I'm kind of like doing self-expression. I'm doing improv and like, no one's, I don't know. No one's like begging me to do this. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, like, and also, and also you are. So like, let's give ourselves some credit here. Sure. Uh, But it does the whole process of like getting there is not easy. It's kind of like a step-by-step thing of like, okay, I think I'm, I'm fitting in here. I think what I'm doing is worthwhile. Okay okay, I'm doing it a little more and I think I'm still in the right place. Um, which, and it's not the total like fucking dive in and see what happens mentality yeah. for me. Yeah. Well, I want to talk for a second about the, the lamest question you can ask a person, which is where sure. your ideas come from. Because the answer in all cases is, I don't know, everywhere. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I am interested in, you said that you have like a notebook full of like ideas for plays from when you were younger. And and yeah, I'm, I'm interested in the kind of different effort that has to go into sitting in front of a notebook and generating your ideas versus being an improviser where yeah, you're not waiting for permission as an improviser, but you also, because there's that urgency to have to get out and do it, you just don't have time to second guess anything at all. And you just make stuff work. Yeah. Whereas when you do have the luxury of time, that same urgency is not there and, and you have to start kind of, um, listening to the chorus of voices inside yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious, like how you approach improvising versus how you approach writing. That's a great question. Um, 
I think I approach improv first and foremost as from an acting perspective. I think I put myself on a stage and I see what what's going on. I think, I think when I think about starting a scene, I'm in a specific position on a stage, and then I'm not thinking about a fictional context that I'm in. I'm uh, I'm checking in with myself and I'm like, okay, what does this feel like? And I'm like, okay, great. That's path of least resistance. I'm, I'm there. If someone says something to the contrary, then I'm, I can get rid of that. And I think you're exactly, I don't have time to judge any of these things or I mean, in a perfect world, I don't, of course I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't, I have less time to give credence to these thoughts of being like, Oh, that's stupid. Or like, ah, oh, there's like, there's, there's gotta be a better choice because you gotta say something. Well, you know, at, at a certain point you do. And in terms of like, you ever have you ever been on stage and missed that boat? You know, I got to say something, and then you overthink it, and then you miss the boat, and you're like, "Oh fuck!" Now I'm second guessing everything I say for the whole rest of the show. Yeah, sorry, I think, I think I have. Yeah, definitely. I think starting with like the Friday night show, definitely. Yeah, because I like I was so impressed with everyone there, and they play so fast. I was like, "Well, I could have just made a bigger choice there." And yeah. now I'm just like, now I'm just the guy who's trying to catch up. <laughs> The rest of the show. That's an interesting thing. How like you you got to kind of get over being impressed by other people to to get on with playing with them. Oh my god, yeah, it's yeah, it's a sure. real hurdle. Yeah, it's so hard to play with people who you're afraid of, or like who you respect so much. Maybe afraid of is not the right term, or who you defer to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Because they don't want to be deferred to. They want they want the same thing you want when you're playing with someone. They want someone who's making strong choices and is game for stuff. Yeah. And you can know that consciously, but and embodying it is like so because you love their choices so much. Like if I'm on stage with like Sebastian Canelli, I'm just like, keep fucking like being so funny. Like yeah. I just need to stand here. I wish I could just stand here and do nothing. But that's a, and like being from like a big sib, like I've big sibbed classes, and you know all you need people to do is just make a choice and you can react. Yeah, uh, and it, that is so freeing. And yet being with people who you revere is stifling. Well, I guess it's similar to being the playwright and working with a director who's also your your respected teacher. Yeah. You kind of assume that they have better answers than you do. Mm-hmm. And, and at least for me, it can be really hard to break out of that I'm your student mode. Yeah. Which is a good mode to be in when it's appropriate. and But then when it's time to play, you really can't be anybody's student. You have to... Oh yeah. You have to make your own, make your own way up there. Yeah. I like the term you have to be the adult in the room. Yeah. I think in terms of everyone, like you can't be, you can't let the audience decide what's going to be good. You just, you have to be the one in control. Yeah. Um, Which is tough to be when you, when you want to defer. Jason Manzuka said it's 85% confidence. I love that. I think that totally rings true for me. Yeah. It's like, I think, yeah, 80% of improv or something is owning the stage. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. So you are, so you're up there, you're checking in. Mm-hmm. What does this feel like to me? As long as that's not contradicted by what the other person is going, you trust that and you launch into it. Mm-hmm. What is that? What does it feel like to me? I know what it is to me. When I check in, a lot of times it will either be a memory is triggered, a scene from a movie is triggered, mm-hmm. this kind of wispy sense of where I am is triggered. But if I'm given the luxury of time, but not too much time, uh, if I'm given the luxury of just enough time, it's this kind of wispy, sudden sense of like, oh, okay, I'm in my uncle's house. Mm. Or, or 
or I'm in the middle of breaking up with you or like whatever it is. It's, it's this, I don't know. What is it for you? I think it's usually more towards the latter where it's more, this is a moment between two people Mm -hmm. than it's something from my life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a cool one thing, one idea that I find really enticing and that I don't think I do much is kind of like bringing in real life specifics that are like so rich and, and I don't think I do that that often in scenes. Um, but I, I really, the, what you're talking about is like the feeling of, I, th- I think I know what this is. It's, it's rarely for me like, oh, I'm on, it's rarely a memory. Mm-hmm. It's usually, it's probably more towards like a, a TV trope or like a scene that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Or it's the immediate moment between these two people. Like what is immediately going on? Yeah. It's interesting because I, I, I'll also get like bits and pieces from TV shows mm-hmm. and I have no shame in stealing plots from TV shows from yeah. improv at all. If it feels right, it's fair game, uh-huh. but it, um, it's interesting how like loaded that can be. How if like you basically look into this and it feels like a scenario you've seen before, you're able to commit yourself. I mean, I, it just, it, it makes sense. You're able to pretend that scenario and get the worry out of the way of what's my purpose up here now. I'm just in the middle of this breakup scene. Yeah. I do it to the best of my abilities. Yeah. Whereas like, if it's more the thing of, Oh, this feels like I'm in my uncle's house. That might be a really rich setting for you, but then it still leaves the question of like, well now what exactly Mm -hmm. should I just pick up this cup or like, what should I do in my (laughs) uncle's house? Picking up a cup is always strong. Yeah. It depending on how you pick it up, it sure can be. <laughs> if you discover something in the cup, it can be a blast. Actually, my favorite in Stella Adler's book, she talks about complicating the action. And, uh-huh. and like her example for that is like, don't just pick up a cup and drink from it. Pick up a cup, notice lipstick on it, wipe it off and drink from it. Don't just sit down, pull a handkerchief out and wipe a wipe a hair off the chair before you sit down. Like, look for these opportunities to lend personality to the actions that you're taking. Huh. Little tiny discoveries to kind of help to make it feel like you're really involved and aren't just going through the motions of stuff. And certainly when it comes to drinking, because drinking is going to be 95% of the shit you're going to do on impress stage is drinking from a cup. Yeah. Finding little tiny ways to like set this a cup apart from other cups you've drank from yeah. can be a world of difference later on in the show. I love that. I love doing... It's also like... If an audience member notices that, great. They're like absorbed. I think there's a great Brex quote of like, there's nothing more interesting than a man trying to untie a knot in mm-hmm. his shoe. And then if they don't notice it, it's just like a little thing for you to just like, I don't know, get yourself off. Yeah. Like, which is, and that'll give you momentum and a little more joy to go into the rest of the show. I think it's help. Like two things are really helpful for me mm-hmm. when I'm given the luxury of time to develop a scene. And it's a little bit different when you're, either in the third part of a show or you're in the kind of show where it's like, I just got to, I just got to be as funny as I can with this. Mm -hmm. But if you're in the first part of a show and you have the time for it, for me, I love having that little bit of scenario. Okay. Breakup scene. That's great. That's easy. That takes care of the problem of like why I'm here to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then I love having the time to get to fill that breakup scene with like, certain observations or certain details that aren't necessarily breakup scene details, but that just make it feel like I'm not just doing a TV scene right now. Mm-hmm. I have, I have, there's an action, there's a purpose to the scene, but there's little tiny details from, from reality that are making their way to make this feel a little bit more unique and a little bit more like two specific 
human beings and mm-hmm. not just like tropes. Yeah. If I have space for both of those things to coexist in a scene, I'm happy as can be. Are those things that you would make explicit or those things that you would just see? And for you. Say, no. They're yeah. for you. Yeah. And it's just, it's so that you feel alive up there. Yeah. Like little tiny things like wiping lipstick off a glass. I agree with you. If the audience notices that, that's fabulous. You want yeah. that. You want people to be paying that kind of attention to what you're doing. Yeah. But even if they don't notice it, that action should make a, a subtle psychological difference in the way that you're feeling. It's Definitely. just a little tiny thing like that gives you information that somehow ends up working its way into the scene. And sometimes you're surprised yeah. how that happens. I, yeah. I almost like imagine like the thought is like, oh, isn't this fun? Like, yeah. <laughs> look at this. Like, yeah. I'm just, I'm just, no one told me to do this. I'm just like doing this lipstick thing in the cup. And then now it seems so much more real for me. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So, all right. So how do you approach it when you're sitting down to write something? That's a great question. Um, when I sit down to write something, I am now trying to make it as, I guess, I want to protect the, mom- the moment that we're being introduced to uh, for the audience. Um, and by doing that, I think I want to focus in on what's going on with the two people on stage. Uh, and because it, it's pre-written, so it has to be, I don't know, maybe this is even wrong, but like it has to be a little more interesting and charged. Mm-hmm. Like we, we have to get, you know, you're telling a story. So essentially like there's, a, there's already something happening. And like this is where the, the kind of the beginning point that you're showing to the audience for a specific reason. So geez, I've already made it so convoluted, but I think I want, I want to make sure that the audience knows that you're starting in the middle of something Mm -hmm. and then not, and then like allow what that is to come about sprinkled throughout the rest of the scene. Um, So I love starting scenes, like very tense moments. Like, yeah. Or kind of with theatrical images, I Mm -hmm. guess. So, yeah. And then as, as I go through the scene, it's just as invested as possible. And just like, and I think the term top of intelligence helps me because sometimes I'll just write a line because I think it's stupid and funny, but then I'm like, no, this isn't going to hit. It's just like a funny line that I think is funny as a written line, but it's not, it's not a moment that's good. You know, are you, do you consider yourself, and this might be way too broad, but do you consider yourself more, you're writing from a place of autobiography writing from a place of external observation of like looking to other people to notice interesting things or, or maybe writing from a more unconscious place of looking to just be surprised and delighted by where your, where your mind takes you. I mean, obviously it can be like a combination of those different things, but like as a starting point, do you have, do you tend to prefer? I think the, the best I can phrase it in terms of from idea to like pieces that I've actually written it's just I've imagined a single moment on of theatricality or on the stage yeah. that I want to see. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, let's like what entices me about that moment. Like, let's explore that and let's make sure I protect that first idea on the stage. And it's very rarely a moment for my life. It's very rarely this this happened to me, and I think it makes a good story. It's more of it comes from an imaginative place. Um, for Telegraph, it was the the sound that actually wasn't 
uh, it was anachronistic is that kind of do, 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 do. And I'm like, wow, that's like a, I kind of like that. Those are words. And that really enticed me. I was like, just to like see a guy listening to that and then make words out of it is so cool. Mm-hmm. And actually the, when I said it, the telegraphs didn't make that noise. Yeah, it's it's uh, just a clicking, yeah. which I found out so late in the process, which is very funny. Um, so I, I'm try. I would try to make it from that place. What actually happened with telegraph in a certain sense was that I over-intellectualized it. I like went from that. Oh, isn't that communication thing interesting? And then I was like, Oh, doesn't that also apply to like how we treat Facebook or like how the, the, the message is so dissonant from like what it actually is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, that actually doesn't make for a very good theater. It makes for good discourse sometimes, but uh, it's not very dramatic. Well, one of the things that is so um, nerve wracking about writing anything and so delightful about improvising is that when you're improvising, you don't really have the time to ask what this all means. You, you just are kind of like shaping it on the fly. Yeah. And sometimes you're like amazed at like, holy shit, this whole show was like a metaphor. The whole show was a metaphor for a hurricane. Unbelievable. You know, like, yeah. And, and that can be like really amazing, but like you just don't have the time to mm-hmm. look at it like, um, like a college student. Whereas when you're sitting to write something, I, from myself, I can get about three lines of dialogue on the page before my college student brain kicks in and I start defending my thesis and whatnot and looking for all the multi-layered connection. And it's like yeah. maddening. It's nerve wracking. Yeah. And at least for me, I absolutely cannot trust any of that stuff that my brain is doing in that moment. Like that, that voice that's looking for it to mean something. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to discount everything that voice is saying because that's, it's, yeah. it's all wrong. I totally agree. That's, I think David Mamet calls that the repressive mechanism. Yeah. It's like your theater. It's like your taste. It's your criticism coming yeah. into play. Yeah. Yeah. Which is antithetical to your creative impulse. Yeah. You're, you're just, you're imagining yourself past the point of the, you're imagining the reception of the product and not even, not even the, the living moment of the product appearing you're imagining the congratulations afterwards and, and mm-hmm. the people picking at you to, to delve into all the interesting mysteries of what you created. Yeah. And it's, a, it's pretty bad. It's yeah. pretty bad. You, you, the author become center stage and not the image that you have that you're starting with. Yes. Yes, exactly. You, it's a little bit like, look at, look at this smart thing I wrote. Aren't I smart? Where then that's great for an essay, kind of. Yeah. But it sucks for just a night out at the theater. Yeah. Right. Like, I think that's why I think just writing some shorter stuff and I like just started writing more sketches has really kind of helped me forget that a mm-hmm. little bit because there's no, I have no pressure to be smart. I yeah. Feel like, I think. And what's funny is that like I put out some of these things and people are like, oh, this is so smart. And I'm like, I was just, fucking around which the, i mean not uniformly that's sure maybe i'm too my own but you but. you end up like you end up revealing yourself when you're not trying to yeah and you end up kind of concealing yourself when you're trying to be really uh, um expressive yeah you know that's so scary though it like, is you just, you have to like yeah you have to forget yourself a little bit yeah. it's like I, I often think like when I step on a stage, people can see parts of me that I cannot see. Yeah, I think that's true. I agree with that. I think that's wholly true. Yeah. I think it's true for everyone. I, I think when yeah. you step on stage, you, you are, you're transparent. 
Yes. And if you're thinking all kinds of cloud, like if, if, if you're very self-centered and not, I don't mean selfish. I mean, self-centered. I think there's a difference in my mind between those two. Mm -hmm. Selfish is good. Selfish means you're, you're, you, it's that 85% commitment thing. Oh, okay. I give enough of a shit in, in my, in my semantic framework. framework, I give enough of a shit about the choice that I'm making, that I'm owning it. Yes. And I don't need your approval about it. I'm owning this to me. That's selfish. And that's really good. Self-centered is monitoring yourself really closely to make sure that you're always looking however you most want to look. You want to look smart. You want to look funny. You want to look whatever it is. And you're kind of missing big chunks of the show because you're thinking more about yourself than you are about the show that you're in. Mm -hmm. And that to me isn't good. And and if you have self-centered thoughts going on, I believe the audience just sees you look like a cloudy day to them. Mm-hmm. You're just full of fog. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have that going on, I, I agree with you. I think you're totally transparent and they see stuff inside of you that you are not even aware is going on, but they see yeah. it. They can probably see that self-centered mechanism, right? I think Working. so. I think that you can see someone trying to be slick, be cool on stage. Yes. trying to, Or at least trying to appear cool. Yeah. And, that, and it's never fun to watch. It's always like, oh, well... I didn't come for this. I came to watch someone make a fool of himself. It, it, totally. Yeah. yeah. I, I watched a show. It, I was actually amused at how much this pissed me off, but I watched a, a show last week, a group I'd never seen before. I, I don't know these people. Um, but one of the guys in the group took the stage and immediately pissed me off because he started like looking around the stage to kind of take stock of like what was on the stage and how it could be used for the show, mm-hmm. which I'm not opposed to at all. But it was so clear to me that he was just imitating having seen somebody else do that or, or imitating like a teacher who said that that's a good thing to do. Uh-huh. It just immediately struck me as like, this is totally you fake. S- you could see why he was doing it. Yeah. Wow. You, I, to me, it, it, it immediately looked, this guy is trying to create the impression of be a, being a solid, confident pro. And I don't believe for a second that he is. Yeah, yeah. And then the show <laughs> kind of demonstrated my my distrust. But it, it, like as an audience member, uh, um, is it like you, in about two seconds you'll make that that recognition of yeah. somebody. You'll see if their motivation is sincere or if it's self centered. One hundred percent. It's interesting. Yeah, that's why it's so scary. Yeah. I think to be on a stage, and it's so kind of agonizing to watch yourself in videos afterwards because you're like, man that is not how I thought I, I looked and sounded and come off. But I, I think that's a, it's a matter of being able to, to let that go a little bit yeah. to, to understand the kind of chaos that goes into that. And that you don't have that much control over what, what people's perception of you are. You just can't give a shit about it for yeah. 20 minutes. You just really can't care if you look cool or not. Yeah. And, 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 then perversely, the people who don't care if they look cool end up looking super cool. You look really cool. Yeah. Because you end up looking just, you look like yourself. Mm-hmm. You, you, look, you look spontaneous and natural. Yeah. And that is like engrossing. You, mm-hmm. you, you, that's the person you can't stop looking at. They look totally present. Yeah. They look totally relaxed. Yeah. There are some people who go on stage and you can't see them. And there are some people who go on stage and you see exactly them. You yeah. see exactly who they are. Yeah. And I think... I think that's tied into what we refer to as talent, but I don't, I don't know if that's exactly right. I, I think that it is talent, but there's something else too. I, it, 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 it is that ability to kind of forget about yourself for a little while. Yeah. I, I do think that, I think that when you're improvising really well, you're like, 
partly conscious and partly not really conscious. Let me try to like break that feeling down because I don't think that that sentence captures it. You're totally alert and awake, but you're, you're not, um, not looking at yourself too hard to like, make sure that what you're about to do is good or fits or meets your criteria. You're just kind of doing it without really thinking too much about it. It's just, it, it, you're just responsive. Mm-hmm. And so stuff is coming out of you without meaning to. You're not going up there saying, I'm going to really express myself tonight. You're just kind of being responsive to what's happening and not thinking too much about it. It just seems to fit. Mm-hmm. But people end up walking away with a pretty strong feel for for you. Yeah. Now, and and, and there, like, not to get like Buddhist about it, but like, there's a difference between the the public relations you mm-hmm. that you kind of wear at parties or where when you're like chatting with people before a show mm-hmm. and a, a more kind of total you that kind of can't exactly be pinned down. It's just like, oh, I get the you-ness of this person. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and a really good performer has that ability somehow to like forget themselves enough or like just not monitor themselves enough where you get that sense of like you-ness to yeah. them. I think that's a good way of putting it. It's a tough thing to pin down. Yeah. Cause it's like, because it's so complicated because you've described the public relations, you, and then there's the you who you are around your family. And then there's the you who you are when you're in your own dreams. And there's the you who you are in your head. And there are so many, so many of these things that, need to reconcile and these are situational and they are all interconnected and convoluted and these aren't separate entities because they're all coming from exactly who you are but in a certain sense you need to unify all of them Mm -hmm. when you're on stage you need to somehow inhabit every single person you you are in every single situation in a certain way i i imagine it almost like you got like 10 different like finger puppets and then like there's an invisible person connected to the two hands on these 10 finger puppets. And in different social situations, you'll play one of those puppets in each situation and and you'll be like flexible enough to like switch. And when you're with your parents, you're this puppet. When you're with a girlfriend, you're this puppet and Mm -hmm. like whatever it is, you're teaching a class, you're this puppet. Mm -hmm. And then when you're, improvising or I guess acting, it it would be the same thing. Mm -hmm. But when you're doing it really well, it's kind of like you're giving it over to like the invisible person. Like even you can't see the invisible person behind the hands. You just have like a trust that they're like alert enough to somehow be like responding to things correctly. Yeah. But when it feels really like shitty, you're using this finger puppet on your pointer finger for this situation because that's my improv finger puppet. Yeah. This finger puppet is the one who learned to look around the stage at the start of a show to like, see what I can use up here. And I'm yeah. pulling that out, but it doesn't seem sincere. I don't know this. Now I've gone off the tracks. That's a shitty metaphor. I but think it, to me, it feels like this, it, it like, I, I'm not even sure. Like the real me that's coming out on stage is like, I, I don't know. It's not, it's not my image of myself. It's coming from the whole organism yeah. in, in the whole moment. It's, it's kind of like a total response. Mm-hmm. Sorry to get off. No, not at all. Uh, I think that's good. I think the one thing that I'd say about that is kind of like, 
I think there is a certain amount of personal agency that you need to take on the stage with you. And if you're bringing on with you a specific you that day, it's not all reactive. It is, I think you still have an improviser finger puppet, but it just has to encompass more of you. Mm -hmm. And, and it comes, I think, you know, if I call myself, like, if I say to myself before a show, like, dude, like you're the man, you're going to go on stage and kill it. You've done it before. I, I bomb so hard. Mm -hmm. I suck. (laughs) And it's because I've put this expectation on myself. And it's also, I've reduced the problem to zero. I've like, so much of the problem is just like getting out there and making yourself vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I think on this podcast, you've described an actor who used to like shit talk himself before Mm -hmm. going on, on screen or something that tends to work much better for me. Yeah. I'm like, you're not that good. at Yeah. (laughs) Then I'm like, Oh, great. Then I can actually like be excited about other people's ideas and not just want to like fucking like write jokes really quickly for the audience. I don't know. So I guess I just contradict myself a little bit in terms of like, I need, you need to let go a lot, but you also, there also has to be a a certain decision you make when you step on stage. I agree with that. uh, McNapier in one of his books said, you got to, his like advice for auditioning improvisers is be funny. Which is like actually deceptively, yeah, brilliant advice. Because yeah. <laughs> then he he goes on to talk more about it, and he's he's like, that doesn't mean go up there and like prepare yourself to tell jokes, but before you audition, and I think it's equally true for before you do a show, you gotta just put yourself in a funny place, hmm. and it's hard. Like you can't guide someone to what that funny place is. You just kind of know when you're there. You're in the right attitude where it's the lighter part of you or the, mm. the part of you that has that little bit of like mischievousness to them. Yeah. You, you, you find your way to just like be there and then you filter your performance through that part. So you're, you're letting yourself be guided by this choice to, mm-hmm. I'm going to be in a funny headspace, yeah. even though I don't know what deliberate funny things I'm going to be doing. Yeah. Like his advice is he, he's talking about the, the thing that people tell themselves in improv auditions that, if I just show up to the audition and I'm really supportive of other people's ideas and I'm just really honest up there, I'll be good. Mm-hmm. And people tell themselves that to take off the pressure of having to be funny. And he's like, it's bad. It's a bad thing to tell yourself because you're going to go up there and you're going to make other people look good and you're going to be very boring. You're not going to be filtering things through, through your funny thing. Through you're not going to be looking yeah. for those opportunities to take your shots. You are going to be very generous but you're going to be very passive. And he's like, the reality is you, yes, you have to be supportive and generous, but all that, all of that has to be filtered through. We want to see your strength up there. Yeah. We want to see your funny thing. Mm-hmm. And to me, I, I like, I, I agree with that. And I think that that relates to your point of like, you have to make a leading choice first. It's not just trusting your higher self or whatever you want to call it. If you make that leading choice and then you give it up to like, okay, I now, We'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. But if you don't make that leading choice first, that's when you get up there and you think totally. it's going to be like yeah. pure as the virgin snow. And then you open your mouth and you got nothing. And then you immediately panic and, and do horrible yeah. self-critical crap. Yeah. You're just flat footed. Yeah. You're every, everything's people are rushing by you. you that's, a, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. I think flat footed and on your toes is a, are hugely helpful terms in terms of how teams play. That's awesome. Yeah. Where'd you come up with that? Uh, I think, playing a lot of basketball growing up yeah you just there's this kind of sense of like 
you got to be ready to like handle that ball, like whenever, like, I don't know. You can, it's hard to describe in terms of an improv sense, but you definitely know it when you see it. If like, if a moment's failing and people on the sidelines, they're all, I have pet peeve of mine is people leaning against the walls. Me too. In improv. Yeah. I, goddamn. Especially if the show's bad. I'm like, <laughs> and of course, like, look, look that's going to be a problem. Yeah, yeah. Like, look alive here. Like, you're not off stage. Yeah. No one's ever off stage. If you're in an improv show, you might not be in the scene, but you're performing. And if I, I, if I get a compliment about my sideline behavior, I'm fucking jazzed about it. I'm like, that's because like going through and watching so many improv shows, you get distracted by people on the sidelines. Like if they're zoning out, you know, and mm-hmm. now you're now what the hell are you thinking about? You're not thinking about the dumb scene that's going on. Like, Every, every, everyone's focus has to be towards the moment. Well, it's that transparency thing again. Even when you're on the sideline, people see right through you. Yeah. It's an interesting, like you enter into this contract the second you pay for a ticket for a show. Mm-hmm. It's like, we're agreeing to drop the pretense that we walk around with all the time in real life. Like in, in real life, we're not looking through each other and peering deep into each other's minds. We're fairly reasonably polite. Yeah. But the second you pay your seven bucks for a ticket and you sit in the audience and you yourself are an anonymous part of a crowd, no one's looking at you, you're off the hook. Mm-hmm. Suddenly you just see right through the people that you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Because you're off the hook and it's not a two-way street anymore, all of a sudden the person you're watching becomes totally transparent. Not in a mind-reading sense, but in a sense of if someone's checked out, even for half a second, you feel it. Yeah. You see that cloud pass in front of their mind immediately. Mm-hmm. And it's a bummer. It kills the show. Yeah. And more often than not, if someone's judging the scene, you know. Totally. You know immediately. Yeah. Uh, they don't have to be in the scene. More often they're outside the scene, like with some awful smile, like ra- wretched smile on their face. And like, what? Like if you're judging the scene, there's probably something weird about it that you can exploit. I don't know. It's like, it comes to the, it comes back to this like really tough choice. Like, cause you want to be honest and like, if you're not enjoying the scene that you're watching, then well, like don't, don't be disingenuous about that. But it's also like, that's your team up there. And this could be like, why are you evaluating it? This could be something so magical in three minutes. You, you have to know that. I don't know. So like, that's a tough I, note to take. I don't, part I don't of that is, that. part of that comes with experience. Yeah. Part, part of that is early improvisers, if things aren't working, they just don't have the experience yet to know that if you give this three minutes, yeah. something really awesome might happen. Mm-hmm. Three minutes is a long, long time. And you got to be a really confident improviser to let something be for three minutes without needing to fiddle with it. Mm-hmm. Partly it's a confidence thing. I think partly it's a, you have to be called out sometimes for kind of being a jerk to people. You, you, you got to like recognize that like, I can't do that because I'm letting other people down when I when I'm mentally yeah. crapping on you. And I guess I've, I'm speaking about it as if this is something that I've never done, but sure, believe, believe you me, of dear course. God, I have been that guy on the sidelines and it's a matter of checking yourself in, enough that you're still sane and honest with yourself, but also like not being a dick. Yeah. Yeah. Not letting your, your quote unquote supreme taste inform the show. So from now on, whenever I quote McNapier's thing about be funny, I'm going to add the addendum of be on your toes and not flat-footed because that, that to me nails it perfectly. Mm-hmm. It's, it's putting yourself in that mindset of I'm going to be on my toes and not just be standing there like a, as my mom would say, like a judge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fabulous. What do you do? Not that you have this experience too often on Sexy Baby, I'm sure, but 
what do you do when you find yourself in that position of like not really enjoying what's happening happening in a show? I think uh, great advice from Megan Gray is like if you if you catch yourself thinking, man, I, I'm glad I'm not out there. Put yourself out there immediately. And I think it's tricky because like in a certain sense, you have to. I, sorry, the, the question was like, what do I do if I find myself? Mm-hmm seeing that but this can be broader this can be like your advice to to people like, like let's say for ex- let's say you're you're coaching and uh, someone asks you that question what would be your advice to them I, I find myself i find myself when i'm not laughing at what my teammates are doing uh judging their scene check check yourself before you check the scene check say you need to have the wherewithal which i think is a super important word in terms of improv to take a deep breath be like i'm not helping i'm judging so and now you're in a place where you can listen and so then recheck in you were probably judging the scene because there's something strange it's not ringing true Mm. for some reason that is great there's something that's so weird so exploit that thing if people are talking very stiltedly and they're not acting like they know what's going on even though they've established that they're at a subway be a person right next to them be like are you guys spies or something? Like, why are you talking like this? Like respond to the people mm. to respond to what they're actually doing, not what they're meaning to do. Mm. Yeah. That's good advice. I hope so. I hope I can take that because I think that's a really scary thing to do. And it's a really fine line, especially you come up in classes where like for very good reason, you're not trained to do a lot of walk-ons mm. and you're not trained to quote unquote, fix other people's scenes which is kind of exactly what I'm, I'm getting at. Like you're exploiting a, a weird thing that's already going on and that, that they might not even recognize because they're in it and they're panicking. But I also think like this is kind of like an optimal strategy. Mm-hmm. But I do think that this is not, not something I've thought of before, but checking yourself before you check them is sound. Yeah. Take a breath. Let's talk about wherewithal. Yeah. Why is that such an important word for you? I just think it 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 sums up if like if a if a improviser now I'm going to start using the word wrong, but if an improviser has wherewithal, mm-hmm. then I see them on stage being present and they can actually react. They're not they're not just there in service of the the game of the scene or the the plot of the scene. They're actually in they're actually just like there experiencing the moment and able to react to every new thing that comes on. So like no detail gets really dropped. No, no strange thing flies through the scene that they don't at least point out or like make the choice to not point out. Mm. And you see them make that choice. And that's usually pretty funny. Um, But I guess it's wherewithal would be the opposite of what we call being in your head. Mm. You're just there. You're just kind of like you're behaving like a normal person on stage. You do something um, uh, sometimes that I think is so difficult to pull off. And I'm curious if, uh, if you can comment on it. You have the ability in a scene to point out the irrational thing, point out somebody else's silly behavior um, without yourself being like 
the ironic, unaffected guy. And it's a super, super hard thing to do. I read in one of Keith Johnstone's books, he said that drama is frequently people making big deals out of big situations. Comedy is frequently people making big deals out of small situations. And improv is frequently people making small deals out of big situations. Yeah, huge things. And um, I think that we as improvisers rely on that a little bit too much sometimes because you can get a big laugh out of underreacting to a really insane thing. Mm -hmm. But what you get in that one laugh, you lose in the kind of like dramatic integrity of like the follow through of this big situation. Like if you don't just go for the wry, unaffected non-reaction, this big crazy thing that happens might have legs to basically run through the entire rest of your show. And we see the effect that it's having on everybody. Mm. Improvisers frequently will get hooked on to, I just won't be affected by anything. And that's really funny. And I'm speaking from uh. chronic experience here, my friend, uh, because I am one of those guys on my worst day. That's my, that's my bad habit. Okay. You have an amazing ability to undercut craziness and be able to, to react to it in a way that's not like a big, crazy affected way and very reasonable, very small scale, uh, uh, pointed, intelligent way that does not end up taking wind out of its sails. Oh, it thanks. ends up pointing out the insanity of it, but it still is like the ship is free to sail away at their discretion. I'm curious, A, if you're aware that you're doing it and B, if you are, what's the secret, man? I, this is not something that I, I guess I thought I knew you're talking about, and it's not the generally a big emotional reaction. Mm -hmm. It's usually a smaller thing. Yep. Well, I'm very flattered. I thank you so much, but I guess it takes a, it's taken, I guess like seeing enough. It happens a lot in, uh, I'd say I've taken like a decent amount of like UCB classes. I've seen a decent amount of like, and been in a decent amount of like UCB student shows. Mm -hmm where they're so trained to like point out the unreasonable thing and they do exactly that what you're describing where it's like, Oh, I can get a laugh by framing this, by like pointing this out and not, but, and not being affected by it. And I guess I've seen enough people do that and seen 30 seconds after they do that to know that this is that only, you know, despair lies this way or whatever mm -hmm. you want to say that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, 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 I want to say that's a good reason why I, like I choose to be affected by things on stage, but I, is there an example of a moment I, that I might be able to speak to? Uh, I'm going to start with the holiday mix em up show Great. where you were one of many rival Charles Darwin's uh -huh. as that show got completely insane. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to quote this well because I don't remember the exact quote, but y you were the one who just kind of pointed out that this was batshit insane and made no sense mm -hmm. in the most delightful way possible that after you, you had like done just enough to frame it so that we could like follow along. And then after that point, the show went just fucking bananas uh -huh. in the most wonderful way possible. That's a lot of fun. It was just like, I don't know, a dozen different Charles Darwin's <laughs> from different time periods all like collecting. I don't remember, but there was a thing of like, and I don't remember exactly what you said, but you were laughing as it was happening, as you just kind of stopped the action for a second to like underline what the scene was about and then allow it to continue. It was just enough left brain framing uh -huh. to buy the scene credence, mm -hmm. but also just enough permissiveness 
to let the scene be. Okay, so so here here's what it boils down to. You already said it. Okay. It's that thing of framing it and pointing out the weirdness, but you yourself just being totally unaffected by it. So you get the laugh by pointing out the weirdness, but then when you come back for later beats, you have no character to play except guy who comments on weirdness. Yeah. Versus the person who provides the frame for us to enjoy it because we need one foot in reality for this. Mm -hmm. But the person who themselves is also carried away by the craziness of it. Mm -hmm. You just happen to have this one foot in reality that you become the Luke Skywalker, really. You're the person that the audience is able to relate to. And we follow you through this crazy world. I just answered my own question. (laughs) Good. That's, well, (laughs) I'm glad. Uh, I really appreciate that. I guess I will say one thing that like, I'm really glad to get that compliment because I think uh, there's an idea of like straight manning Mm -hmm. and framing Mm -hmm. uh, that people like kind of pray to. And that like is important. And that the, the, the reason that it, it comes up as like a useful, as what people think is a useful thing is because like so many good scenes have gone this way where like some, somebody's framing, but whenever I'm in a scene being like, Oh, I'm the straight man. I immediately become this fucking improv robot that mm-hmm. can't do anything. I'm the guy you just described. I am the guy who comments on scenes, but it's so much more fun to be Will Jacobs submitting myself to whatever strange thing is happening. If I'm to be Will Jacobs talking to like Darren's Washington playing this like whore goddess who's like brought me to, to hell being like, how would like really trying to be affected in the, in like a, a joyous way that can still be negative within the context or, but just be like, man, this sucks. I just like, I, I really hate this. Is there any recourse to like get out of here? <laughs> and the Darren's can be just be like, no. Yeah. <laughs> and the, like, and the people, I think people really like watching me lose on stage and I really like losing on stage um, because it's a fun way to flip audience's expectations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it it also gets the action going too when you lose. When someone loses that, you know what I mean? Like, it's like a part of the dam breaking. Now the water can flow that way and something interesting can happen. There's also like, I don't know, for me, because I, I think in my worst moments, and they happen all the time, I'm also really guilty of I'm ironic comment guy. Mm, yeah. I, I point out the thing that you just said and I, with like a kind of cocky smirk on my face and I don't forward anything. I, I just get that laugh at your expense and then I got nothing. Yeah. I'm stuck with a bad attitude. I think in the shows that I really enjoy doing, I'm basically myself because I'm a shitty actor, but I'm like, okay at being myself. That's not true, man. You're great. Hey, thanks, man. I appreciate it. I'm basically myself in whatever idiotic situation this is. And for me, it's just that like, how, how do you be yourself, but also put yourself in the insanity that we want from an improv show? Yeah. And I think that it just has to do with this magic. Okay. Quality Mm -hmm. that it's me plus. Okay. And once you say that, okay you are free to be like, man, I hate this. Can we leave now? Because that just becomes so delightful. It's not a resistance. It's a a, a, a cry for sanity. That little tiny cry for sanity that makes all the rest of the insanity so delightful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing how close 
those two things are like half a step to the left and you're getting in the way of this show by being the voice of reason. Yeah. Half a step to the right and you are fucking the reason why the show is working. Yeah. I don't know. It just keeps on coming back down to that over and over again. Mm-hmm. And you never a hundred percent learn the lesson. You got to keep yourself very honest. Uh huh. I guess it, having people who you know how you balance against can help a lot of the time. Yeah. If you can kind of gauge how like kind of frenetic or kind of create the crazy energy people are bringing on. I feel like a lot of the time I get to be that kind of grounding factor on sexy baby. Yeah. Cause people, people go crazy right off the top. Right. And you got, I, you got, you got big personalities on that team. Yeah. Which is great. And yeah. it's so much fun to play with. And uh, you know, we, you get a, a taste of a voice of reason and the whole show really pops. There's a reality that the absurdity is framed against, yeah. um, which is nice, which is fun to do. Are you a Star Trek fan at all? Uh, I wish I was more. I just watched the first two episodes of the original series and I want to watch more the, over break. The two, break, the, the, the first pilot and then the second pilot or like the first pilot and second pilot. So Captain Pike and Captain, and then Kirk. Captain Kirk. Yeah. So then you'll be able to follow with this very nice. Yes. Um, there's a documentary on Netflix now called I am Spock okay. by Leonard Nimoy's son. Um, not, a, I wish it was better than it is, but, uh, one of the things that there's an interview with Nimoy in the documentary and he was talking about how, when they did the first pilot with Jeffrey Hunter as, as Pike, Jeffrey Hunter is such an internal actor that Nimoy had to compensate by being more emotional and more animated. Uh, but it was so fun when Shatner came in for the second one because Shatner is so chewing the scenery and, you know, <laughs> yeah. that Nimoy was able to just undercut Shatner by like really dialing everything down and just becoming the quiet, yeah. the quiet energy to Shatner's playfulness. Mm-hmm. And that was the dynamic that ended up selling that entire show. Yeah. That really drives That's the really original show. But I loved that thing. I thought that that was such a like, great, simple acting advice of just like being aware of who needs to be the more energetic one right now? Yeah. Because again, it comes back down to like, whether you're pulling out this one finger puppet of being the under player, because that's the finger puppet that you just apply all the time, regardless, or whether you're like aware of like, Oh, I'm playing with Darren's right now. So, okay. I'm using that finger puppet. Mm -hmm. I'm playing with someone. I'm big sipping a class and I'm playing with someone who's got a really quiet, still energy. So I'm going to shatter it up a little bit. I'm going to give them a little bit more to play off against. It's like a little tiny observation like that. Yeah. It it, it can go such a long way. It's so fabulous. Mm -hmm. And I guess it kind of comes down to like, it should, it should just come down to stepping forward and reading the situation. Like Mm -hmm. there's, you can get so much information just by like, looking at a person, you're like, okay, here's how I am balancing against them right now. And this is how our energies are, are balancing. Cause the scene is the interplay, the emotional interaction between the two people. So like how I contribute to that is my half of the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and just reading that is great. And the, the better you know people, the better you are to immediately read that. That's yeah. I was like going through old notebooks a few weeks back and I found, I found this notebook from like 2004. I was like starting to do like some shows uh, like Armando's like slow comedy shows and and whatnot. I found this note that I had like written on like a great show night of like, it's so pretentious and stupid, but it was just, it was like, Oh, all improv is, is managing energies. That's it. (laughs) That was like my big epiphany, which like, 
isn't exactly true, but like, I, I know where 2004 Lewis was coming from with that. Yeah. Because I think it was that realization of like, oh, if I stop, if I stop trying to be good at this and I stop trying to do it correct and I stop trying to impress teacher audience, uh, uh, other performers, and I just tune into the energy on the stage and yeah. I let it flow and look for where it's being blocked and find a way to unblock it so it can move again, it'll be like fine. Yeah. And sometimes that means I have to be the energetic one. And sometimes it means I have to be the manager or whatever it is, but it, it's just this, it, it's more the feeling of how energy is moving around than yeah. do I have a great idea for this? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously it's a lot more than that too, but <laughs> it's, a good, it's good. It's a beautiful, it's I, a good 23 year old epiphany. Yeah. And uh, aren't those like little snippets so enticing yeah. as you're like learning this thing? Yes. It's like, you just want to rely on those things. The one that I carried through for most of the my classes was that as an improviser, the joke is on you for mm-hmm. doing it. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not, I think it's disingenuous. I think you actually do need to put yourself in that funny place and to be a funny person to go on stage and have funny ideas. But you can't can't worry about training that. So the best thing you can do is just commit to the scene and just trust that it's funny that you're doing that, which mm-hmm. it, it really is. Mm-hmm. It's like just to see someone pretend like, like a, like they're pumping up a ball and that's emotionally affecting them. is like really funny. It is. Reason. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the key to that is that it's emotionally affecting them too. I think so. I think it's the joke is on you for being emotionally affected by this, this thing that you admit at the top of the show. Yeah. That's none of this is real and none of this matters at all. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I, I love that idea that the joke is on me. Yeah. I, I think that that's totally true. And, and you know, when you see it, uh, uh, when you see someone who like just doesn't get it and, and the joke is always at someone else's expense, you see it sometimes when you're teaching corporate workshops, it's, it's like a, you know, like the funny guy in the office will come up to play and like everything he says is always at somebody else's expense. It's, it, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and it just, it, it's like, Oh, you don't get anything. Mm-hmm. You're so fucking resistant to being, having people laugh at you that you think it's funny to be the bully in the playground. It's like terrible. Yeah. But like, oh, the joke is on me. I'm the butt of this joke. And the more I care about it, the funnier it the is. Funnier it, is. Definitely. it, it, uh, it reminds me of this great thing I read. Chuck Jones was talking about, uh, um, Wile E. Coyote. Uh-huh. And he was saying that like the, th- the thing about Wile E. Coyote is, um, he, first he can never be hurt by the road runner. He always has to be hurt by his own attempts at stopping the roadrunner. Uh-huh. So you never see him hurt because the roadrunner does anything to him. You always see him set a trap for the roadrunner that backfires and then hurts him. So rule number one, he always has to hurt himself. Mm-hmm. Rule number two, the audience has to be aware that Wiley Cody can stop this at any time. It's just his pride that keeps him driven to try even harder. And he just keeps on being the butt of his own pain all the time. Uh-huh. And it's such a brilliant little tiny like nugget that says so much about comedy in general, in my opinion, of like, that is so exactly right. Mm-hmm. That awareness of like, oh, you're, we're laughing at the trouble that you're getting into, but we're also aware that you are getting yourself into that trouble. Yeah. And then it be, we have total permission to now enjoy every idiotic thing that happens to you. Yeah. Yeah. It's just cool, man. It is. So I want to talk improv for a couple more minutes before we, we end. 
the conversation with a scene. Um, so you went from seeing improv and saying, I could never do that to now playing at least twice a week with a non-musical team and also a musical team. Yeah. How'd and, that uh, happen? Yeah. And, and Friday night show. And Friday night show. Yeah. How'd it happen, man? How do you go from not me to, damn it, I'm going to play three nights a week? Great question. Uh, I, I did a, a comedic play when I was late in high school. And then that was like the big epiphany watershed moment of like, wow, this is something that I really love and that I feel relatively good at. And then I kept, and I wanted to explore that more when I got to college. So I did this uh, great pre-orientation at my school that actually Rick Andrews would sometimes come back and do workshops at. Because uh, he went, yeah. He went, yeah. He, he went, yeah. To San, San He's an alum. Uh, I don't, incidentally, to sidetrack you, I don't know of a single story from people's improv experiences across the country that doesn't at some point have. And then Rick Andrews showed up to teach a workshop. Yeah. He's a guy's just everywhere. He's yeah. How does he do it? He's an ent. Um, he doesn't sleep. That's how. Yeah. Uh, so I took, I did that. It was called campus comedy and the upperclassmen would like counselors, like ushered us in, did improv for us. And I was like, wow, that's insane. And then I signed up for the sketch portion of that. You could do either improv or sketch. And I was like, I'm too scared to do improv, so I'll do sketch. And then I decided uh, that went relatively well. And I saw how much fun the improv kids were having. So I was like, well, I'll try out for the improv teams here. See what happens. Probably won't get on and I'll just like do acting stuff. And I was lucky enough to get placed on an improv team. And... That's that was kind of like the big thing. Then I was like doing practices. I was laughing my ass off with these guys. It was short form and I loved it. I was having so much fun. And the big, I think the first inkling of wanting to do it out like in the real world was when we would go to Chicago every fall and I saw improv, Improvised Shakespeare for the first time. And That's I was like, I would do it. this is absolutely, we saw Improvised Shakespeare and the Deltones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, this is so insane. I don't, I, who are these people? Like what planet did they come from? And, uh, then my first summer back, I took an improv class, my first long form improv class at the pit, actually. And I did that. I did one other class there. And after that, Rick Andrews came and did the workshop. And then I was like, pretty decided that I would start doing classes at the magnet after, after school. How'd you get into musical? Great question. I did a show upon coming back to New York called Wicked Frozen. And that went up at the pit. And that was just like a random thing that I went out for because when I came back to New York, I was like just trying to uh, audition for theater stuff. And I got uh, cast luckily. And two of my castmates were uh, Jen Connor and Kathleen Armenti, who are like just dynamite musical improvisers. And I had already started level one at the magnet. So I was like, yeah, I'll come to it a Tuesday night. Uh, And I saw Wonderland and I was like, these guys are awesome. Awesome. And uh, Jen Connor was the first one to really like push me to take a musical improv class. And I was like, hell yeah, this is really fun. So it all started there. Sweet. All right. Well, we're going to end the podcast as we do now oh, with a little bit of improvisation. Right. improvisation. <laughs> Moving on to a portion of the podcast called Very Serious Scene Opposite a Jar of Pickles. Thank okay. you, Evan. Evan is handing me now a jar of pickles. So here's how this works. I'm going to give you. 60 seconds. We have a jar of pickles here. New York deli style pickles. And that's going to be your inanimate scene partner. Okay. Though in the context of the scene, not inanimate, a living person. Yeah. 
over 60 seconds, I'm going to give you a scenario. I'd like you to improvise the most serious scene that you can opposite the jar of pickles. The only rule is if you ever address the jar of pickles by its name, its name is jar of pickles for no reason other than it's funny to me. Okay. All right. Here's your situation. Are you ready to improvise this scene? Yes. Okay. So, Will, you and this jar of pickles are our childhood friends. You go way, way back. The jar of pickles is a, 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 is a boxer. Okay. I was trained as a boxer. You guys both grew up real poor. Okay. Real down on your luck guys. Oh, no. Okay. This guy, is, he's the underdog. He's like the million to one shot. In a world where no one believed in this guy, Will, you stayed true to him the entire, your whole life together. You were always the one who, like, you know, were able to, like, talk him down. Uh-huh. You were the one who were able to build up his confidence. You believe in him. And your belief has now gotten him to, like, professional class, like boxing or whatever. Yeah. Over the years, you've also become his manager. So you're not only his best friend, but you've like managed this guy's career. Things have gone really well. <laughs> okay. You're now coming into the <laughs> locker room uh, uh, um, to tell this guy, your best friend, to throw the fight tonight because you yourself have been offered just a shit ton of money. And uh, this is like your moral crisis. And you decided to kind of like, uh, um, you, you decided that that, that's, that success is going to make the two of you set for the rest of your lives, and that's more important than this man's dignity right over here. Okay. So this is the scene. This is the scene where you have already told him that he has to throw the fight tonight, and and he has he's turned his turned his back on you. So I've now, already told. You've him already that. told him that. Oh, okay. So Got now it. we're looking at the aftermath of your best friend, the boxer you manage. He'll do anything for you. He'll even throw the fight. But the aftermath of this guy having turned his back on you. Okay. Sixty seconds. Sixty seconds. Okay. I'm sorry. I wouldn't ask you to do this if it wasn't. Dude, you You think I like doing this? You think I like coming to you with this? It's the rest of our lives. When's my chance, Jar of Pickles, huh? When's my chance? When do I, when do I get what I want, huh? me just just consider it okay you got a minute (laughs) just take a breath okay I hate this (laughs) (laughs) and that's a very serious scene with a jar of pickles it's tough I know it's yeah I did one of these myself and didn't realize how much I'm putting someone on the spot when I make him do it. Evan, I'm going to go ahead and say, I think this is our best, very serious scene. The jar of pickles. Wow. This was very good. I like, you modulated it. I like that. There was a lot of like emotional variety in that scene. Thank you. You made the, you made the pauses count, made the matter, the quivering (laughs) sound of your voice. Very beautiful. Wow. Thank you. You, you at home couldn't see it, but we did. You see, we turned the jar of pickles around. So, Will is actually talking to the back of the jar of pickles. And from where Evan and I were sitting, very funny to watch. So, <laughs> strong stage presence. It was fun to do. I like that. Rock and roll, man. Um, plug stuff. What's oh. coming up? Where can people find you? 
Oh, um, I uh, uh, musical Megawatt with Warm Blooded, uh, Megawatt with Sexy Baby, and uh, the Friday Night Show every Friday at eight thirty. Um, yeah, and I have a website, uh, WillJacobsLovesYou.com, where you can um, see my show schedule. Kick ass! Please check it out, folks. Uh, it's Will Jacobs. Thanks for talking, man. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. This has been so much fun. Delightful. And thank all of you fine people for listening. A couple of other thank yous, as I'm sure you're familiar with already. First off, to our producer and engineer, Evan Ford Barden, to our executive producer, Ed Herbsman, all of the kind, decent, wonderful people here in the comedy community. New York City, the Big Apple, the city that never sleeps. We're talking free college tuition. That's on the table, folks. CUNY and SUNY, Governor Andrew Cuomo. And uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio working on that right now. Hey, that's a city I can believe in. Free CUNY. I might go back to school myself. Tell you what, you know, if you make less than $125,000 annually, you may be eligible for free college education. That's the New York I grew up knowing and loving. And that's the New York that I'm so proud to get to. I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. But thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, Please give us a positive shout out on iTunes or whatever the platform you enjoy. Please tweet us with stuff that you like and we'll find a way to talk about it on the show. Uh, Let's hear it up for Will Jacobs over time. Thanks again, Will. Thank you. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.